This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is March 4th, 2021. Today, we're talking about diversity. And no, I do not mean diversifying portfolios. As revealed by MSCI's Investment Insight Survey, which was the topic of our last episode, please check it out if you haven't. There seems to be a real effort to focus on diversity, equality, and inclusion in the investment industry. While inequities revealed by the pandemic and the killing of George Floyd provided additional fuel for this focus, it's a movement that's been building for years. Now, we can't talk about diversity, equality, and inclusion without talking about privilege. And this is not going to be an easy conversation. It's an uncomfortable subject for everyone, and I should put it out there that I myself come from a privileged background, as does my co-producer, Joe Colavecchio. We're both exactly the kind of people you'd expect to find working in the financial industry. We're white, male, upper middle class, graduates from elite universities, and while we work hard and the paths to our current positions weren't easy, the paths were there, clearly marked and paved. Contrast our experience with that of our first guest. My name is Michael Barrington Hibberts. I'm the founder and chief executive officer of Barrington Hibberts Associates. We are a global executive search, leadership and development, and diversity specialists with offices in London, New York, and Dubai. First and foremost, in the UK, we're, we're the longest established Black-owned executive search business. There's not many firms that look like me doing what we do. I'm six foot two. Um, if your listeners are American, about 300 pounds. If they're European, I'll say, you know, 20 stones. So I'm a big guy. I was invited in to meet a London-based company. A HR representative had heard of Barrington Hibbert Associates and our track record within diversity and, and placing um, some significant um, diverse talent. So we were invited into their offices in the West End, um, which is where the majority of um, wealth managers reside. I went to this meeting with my 24-year-old associate who happens to be Italian and is a female. We went to um, the client's reception room. The the client was called by the receptionist to say, um, Michael Barrington Hibbert is here to see you. And he came down and um, my, my associate Eleanor and I stood up and the CEO walked into the room. And remember, it's a reception room. So it has about 12 lovely you know leather seats and it was just myself and Eleanor in that room and he popped his head in done a pivot went back out to reception and I heard him say are you sure Michael Barrington Hibbert's here to see me and um the reception said yes they're just behind you um so he walked back in and myself and Eleanor stood up and this CEO um and remember we were invited in to talk about diversity this CEO stood up to Eleanor and I and put his hand out to shake Eleanor's hand and said, Michael, very nice to meet you. When I asked Michael how something like that could happen, how the CEO of a large wealth management organization could confuse him for his colleague. Who's 16 years 
younger than me and maybe 200 pounds lighter than me, by the way. Michael's answer was surprisingly matter-of-fact. We all have unconscious bias, Adam. We all do. Um, But this particular leader had some deeply ingrained um, biases, which he couldn't necessarily associate a CEO of a, uh, of a leadership firm being a black man. So one of the things that we're trying to do at Barron's Inhibit Associates is really create a safe space, not just for white executives, Hispanic um, um, executives, but also middle management. Because you have to remember, prior to May the 25th, prior to the killing of George Floyd, Race was not the top of the list when it came to um, U.S. corporate America, um, U.K. FTSE 250 companies. So this is a new phenomenon. Like I said, tough conversations to have, but clearly needed. Before we get much deeper, I think it would be beneficial to define what we're talking about when we say the word diversity. Our definition of diversity is really all-encompassing. It, it's, it includes gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, skill sets, thoughts, nationality, you know, background, underrepresented groups, and so forth. So we are thinking about this as broadly as possible. That's... My name is uh, Simison Zimov. I work at Calpers. I'm an investment director and head of uh, corporate uh, governance. So my role really is um, overseeing all the proxy voting and corporate engagement activities involving 10,000 plus companies uh, at which Cowpairs is uh, invested. Our current focus really is on uh, three priorities, corporate board diversity, executive compensation, and climate change. And what about inclusion? What do we mean by that? Normally, quote um, Werner Myers, you know, who sums it up well when it says that diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to death. That quote came up a lot as we put this episode together. So well put, though, truth be told, I had never heard of Werner Myers. If you're in a similar boat, I would really recommend that you look her up. Maybe check out her TED Talk. But let's get back to our conversation. Why are diversity and inclusion so important? Well, aside from being the right thing to do, of course. I'm a numbers person. I'm a data person. I'm a, I'm a, I, I really like to see the empirical evidence. And, and I think that as investors, you know, we are thinking about sustainable business models. We're thinking about the long term. We're thinking about, you know, ending that return that we need uh, to pay benefits. Cowplayers cares a lot about sustainable investment returns. More than half of every dollar we pay out in benefits comes from investment returns. Uh, therefore, we, we do have a fiduciary duty to preserve and increase our capital over the long term. We spent some time and looked at empirical evidence regarding the value of diversity, um, both at the corporate board level and just in, in, in general. And we found that this growing body of evidence, uh, which shows that diverse teams perform better than non-diverse teams, uh, diverse teams make better decisions, they lead to more robust risk management, show higher innovation, and have superior operational and, and financial performance. 
And and when you think about it, even, you know, without the empirical evidence, when you think about it, it actually makes intuitive sense that diversity will result in better outcomes because the collective wisdom, uh, which comes from different lived experiences, can only be additive. Talent uh, is everywhere. That's Jorge Mina, MSCI's head of analytics and chair of the company's executive diversity council. And we got to track the best of, of, of the best uh, if we're going to run an elite company. So uh, providing the opportunities to people with all kinds of background uh, that deserve those opportunities and letting them drive us uh, is going to make us much stronger in the long run. And so uh, it's, it's definitely a no-brainer for, for a business, and, and it's also the right thing to do. And this is... I'm Diana Tidd. I'm Global Head of Indexes at MSCI, and I'm our Chief Responsibility Officer. Diversity is linked through MSCI's own research, our Women on Boards reports, has linked the performance of companies, um, more diverse companies with more diverse boards as one example, but we think it extends beyond that, to better financial performance. So starting in July 2017, uh, we have cumulatively engaged over 800 companies in the Russell 3000, requesting that they improve diversity on their boards. The Russell 3000 Index seeks to track the 3,000 largest stocks in the United States. Why start there? We believe that charity, you know, begins at home, right? We said before we go outside of the U.S., because we're a global investor with all these 10,000 securities, we wanted to focus, you know, in our home market and improve diversity in our home market. And, you know, since then, about 65% of the companies that we engage in added elements of diversity that they didn't have at the start of our engagements. So that's about, you know, over 500 companies of the 800 that we've engaged since July 2017. So there's 35% of the other companies, which means they have not uh, improved their diversity. And on on those companies, we've actually voted against uh, over a thousand directors who sit on nominating and governance committees uh, where our engagements have not led to constructive outcomes. So really, we are holding boards accountable for not making progress on improving diversity because we think that the business proposition, the business value for, for diversity is there, and we believe that all the companies that we invest in should have diversity. is a minority of companies, of course, but a sizable minority. I asked Samiso if part of the resistance he's encountered has to do with the idea that inclusion for you, well, that means less for me. His answer was enlightening. This is something which comes from evolutional biology, right? I mean, it comes from, it's, it's something which is inherent in us. It comes from, you know, back in the days when, there wasn't enough resources, there wasn't enough food out there. And so, you know, if you saw someone who didn't belong to your group, you think, well, they'll come and take the resources from, from me. And, and so, you you know, you'd fight. And so, so there's an evolutionary biology, you know, explanation around why people want to preserve uh, what they have. Uh, and exclude others who may not look like them, right? At the end of the day, remember, I, I was saying that there's a business de- there's a business case for for diversity. So it means we can actually grow the pie by 
in, being inclusive by having, you know, diverse um, people within the organization or levels of the organization. So if we can grow the pie, you know, even if you are not getting 10% of the pie anymore, maybe you're getting 5% of the pie, but 5% of the pie may actually be larger than the 10% of the smaller pie, which was there when you didn't have that being inclusive. Not a point that would be lost on many investors. I was starting to see why large investors like CalPERS have started pushing for change. I think you are seeing a lot of other investors, other asset managers who have come out publicly to, you know, to talk about, um, you know, promoting diversity, not just at companies where they're invested, but at their own companies as well. This is no longer a world where it's it's only activist investors engaging on diversity. We've seen a huge transformation in the level overall of the engagement of the investment community um, on the topic of diversity. And that can come from all different angles. That may come from investors, um, as we've seen some of our clients do, starting to send out to all of the companies in their portfolios surveys about diversity. And we've also seen, of course, from a stewardship perspective, the meetings and discussions going on there and even, you know, some topics related to the specific proxy voting that relate to diversity, right? So certainly more examples of really a demand for being able to see certain levels of diversity on the board, for example. We also saw a leading bank, right, say that they wouldn't actually participate in bringing IPOs uh, or investing in specific companies for their private equity investments that didn't have women on boards. We're, we're speaking to uh, a couple of organizations to place non-exec directors, ethnic minority non-exec directors, um, into their organization. But one of the things that they said to me when they chose their banker to take them to IPO is they looked at their slates. They looked at the bankers that were covering them in terms of where they, they were diverse. So organizations are becoming um, more sophisticated in terms of holding organizations accountable for the business. And that makes sense. As Jorge put it, companies basically want to do business with, with organizations that share their values. Um, and I think it's both a combination of uh, those uh, investors wanting to do the right thing uh, in the world, and at the same time, knowing that companies that are diverse uh, will perform better in the long run. So um, they, they also want to do it for the same reason that we do it, that to make their businesses that they invest in stronger. So asset owners, asset managers, companies from every spectrum of the investment universe all have an interest in increasing diversity. Is this just an HR issue? Is it simply a matter of hiring more diverse candidates? Leaders understand that having a diverse workforce um, adds significant value add to their bottom line. But what I would say to you, Adam, a lot of organizations have been very much more focused on evolution as opposed to revolution. Most organizations sometimes take a knee-jerk reaction and think, oh, we've got to go out and hire more diverse talent. I think ultimately when we look at it from a financial services landscape, what we have, um, Adam, in revenue-generating roles, in client-facing roles across both Europe and North America are diversity deserts. 
And what I mean by diversity deserts, Adam, is going into um, New York, into an investment banking floor, covering primary markets, debt capital markets, equity capital markets, where they're facing off with corporates, um, have different sector TMT coverage. But you go into those diversity um, deserts and you don't see African-American talent. You then might go into a trading floor in New York and you might see one or two ethnic minority talents in revenue generating roles. But then when you go across infrastructure, whether it be um, procurement, HR, all vitally important roles. Let me be very clear on that. All vitally important roles, operations, risk. That's when you start to see the rate of minorities increase in core infrastructure roles. Now, was I born to be an infrastructure person? Um, Were those people born to be infrastructure people? Or was it more by design? So that what we would want organizations to do is that they have the talent internally. So statistically speaking, you know, the likes of JP Morgan may have 10%, 12% of their workforce are black and African American. Okay. So they've got that number to, to match the US. In the UK, it might be sort of six, seven percent. They might have that number. But when you actually look at risk-taking roles, revenue generating roles, or positions above middle management, that's where that number dips, Adam. When you go above that middle management, that's when you don't see those role models. That's where you don't see the senior heads of department. If you look at the amount of African-American FTSE 100, I'm sorry, um, S&P 500 CEOs, it's handful. Within within, um, the FTSE, um, there's none. It it would seem that to me that there are some structural barriers within these organizations which result uh, in only a non-diverse group having upward mobility. And, and when you think about it, a lot of organizations, if you look at entry-level positions, they're pretty diverse. But that, there's no translation of that, you know, diversity as you go up the organizational hierarchy. So that tells me that there must be, you know, some bottleneck somewhere which companies should be looking at and trying to, to address. I'm, I mean, you know, I believe in empirical evidence. I'm, I'm yet to see any empirical evidence that shows one group to be inherently more talented than other groups. So to me, it will seem like a a statistical anomaly that going for best candidates results in just, you know, one homogenous group always occupying the top. If you think of it as a hose pipe, so we've got the flow coming in from the faucet, we've got increased flow, we're still losing talent at the mid-management level. So when they're four to five years in, um, statistically, more ethnic minority talent fall out the system. Why is that? There's a lack of mentoring. There's a lack of understanding. There's a lack of support. So what we need to do, Adam, is actually unkink that hose pipe to ensure that we can actually get more talent coming through that, those middle management roles. So once we get more of that talent coming through the middle management that's when more diverse talent is going to be able to break the glass ceiling from that standpoint.
I think, you know, you, you need to have, you know, things like blind resumes. You need to, to you know, to, to, to have diverse uh, panels because companies come up with policies and things that need to be done. But my, my view is that, you know, policies, um, you know, I, I'm not convinced that the policies are, are really sufficient. I think that really this is about behaviors and, and practices. That's why, you know, you, you talk about unconscious biases. We really need to slow down. We really need to be intentional. We really need to be thoughtful because if you just go by rule of thumb, every individual, every person I know, including myself, we all have unconscious biases. So unless we actually, you know, slow down and be intentional, we will always, you know, do things based on unconscious biases. So what I think is that, you know, while policies um, are necessary, I think they are not sufficient for diversity and inclusion to, to thrive. To, to have lasting diversity gains um, instead of, of you know, sort of fleeting moments of what feels like compliance, uh, one, you really need to have an inclusive culture. You know, th- this idea of culture is, is just so important. This idea of inclusiveness, you know, is such so important. You have to understand that diversity is not an event. You know, it's, it's, it's not a one and done. You know, it's, 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 it's diversity and inclusion is an ongoing thing. It's not about one of diversity training, right? You really have to have this culture. Culture trumps compliance. This is not a compliance exercise and it should never be. There's a saying in financial circles, what gets measured gets managed. But how can companies address these diversity deserts, as Michael put it, if they don't know where the deserts are? And how can investors hold companies to account if they don't have any data with which to do so? Adding to all of this is the fact that different countries have different requirements or even restrictions around personal data disclosures. But as Diana Tidd told us, It's important that there are disclosures, right? So as a firm, our history goes back 50 plus years. We have extensive history in ESG and in indexes um, and our analytic models as well, right? Fundamental to indexes is this underlying belief that transparency is important, right? And so the more information that can be brought um, to investors to understand and therefore make better decisions, it's better, right? So um, we we believe, and it's in our DNA, to feel that disclosures and transparencies are incredibly important. They enable us to create metrics and goals and drive results. There's no reason why companies shouldn't be disclosing that data publicly. We know the data might not look good right now, but we also know that transparency creates accountability, right? If it's out there, if it's being measured, it gets managed. And, and so it, it makes sense to me. And, and I think I encourage companies to actually disclose that data. I think the other thing that companies can do uh, in, in this space, it really is to track internal progress of hires from entry level to identify where the, the bottlenecks are. Have diversity, equity, and inclusion metrics be part of the performance evaluation, right? Because it ended each level of the organization. Okay, my head is starting to hurt now. Diversity is starting to sound a bit like the Gordian knot. 
there's a lot here to consider, a lot to untangle, and we haven't even gotten into history, root causes, implicit bias, structural inequity. The list seems endless. The good news is there is a bit of a blueprint for how we may begin to effectively increase opportunities for groups that have not traditionally had them. When it comes to gender, and more specifically, white women in financial services, organizations still have a lot of work to do. But when they've set their mind to it, they've been able to, to make these opportunities happen. They've been able to make these stretch assignments happen and given female talent the support they, they needed to succeed. Now, don't get me wrong. We are nowhere near where we need to be from a gender point of view, okay? But I think that that same vigor, that same approach needs to happen to more black, African-American and diverse talent, ethnically diverse talent, being given those stretch assignments, being given that support in order to succeed. I think these organizations um, and groups at companies can really make a difference. And again, can help each other. The Women's Leadership Forum started actually about the same time women in ETFs and industry groups started. And I was lucky enough, as well as Christine Berg and Michelle Shanley and some other folks at MSCI to get involved early with women in ETFs. And that organization has grown. I think we're over 6,000 women globally today. So actually, it was the Women in ETFs organization that needed to organize into chapters pretty quickly and then create an organizational structure. And so we learned from that at MSCI with the Women's Leadership Forum. And so today we're loosely 24 chapters around the world, 48 chapter heads. So one unintentional benefit of the Women's Leadership Forum for the folks at MSCI is that it essentially created a leadership opportunity for women around the firm globally to have these visible roles as chapter heads of the Women's Leadership Forum. What we've learned from the Women's Leadership Forum and, and um, has been particularly exciting is that ability for the forum itself to create visibility and leadership opportunities, which um, we didn't realize would happen um, when we set it up. We hope that the Women's Leadership Forum can be helpful to the other ERGs, um, employee resource groups at the firm. And so I remember in one of the meetings with actually the Pride group, um, we, we talked about how can they get more attendance at events? How can there be more um, visibility on Pride? And so we talked about piggybacking some of the events um, with Pride and the Women's Leadership Forum as one example. We've got some prototypes of types of events we've seen that have been useful, but also we can learn from each other and get feedback as well on what might work. So I do think um, there's a lot of opportunity to learn from others in these areas. And once that collaboration, once that momentum is there, it's so important to keep it up. As Jorge said, You have to be deliberate about it. Uh, you have to um, be um, very explicit about your goals and constantly remind uh, everyone uh, that uh, every single day we need to behave uh, in a way that continues to promote diversity uh, in the workplace. Uh, it also has to be a top-down and bottom-up approach where um, it, it comes from the leadership of the organization, 
but every single employee in in the organization is is vested in the success because all of we require everyone to to take action in some cases uh, you know how we recruit um, you know how we develop employees what opportunities we give them you know how we talk uh, in the in the in the uh, workplace etc so uh, it's it will be basically a, a very deliberate and continuous amount of work for for a sustained period of time I am very hopeful because um, you know these uh, all of these issues are are completely out in the open now there's nowhere to hide there is you know support uh, globally uh, also support at uh, um, you know all levels in in most organizations it's cuts across industries and the people who are putting uh, as you said money to work uh, are demanding change and so if unless some of those things, change and we regress which i don't i don't see happening i think we're going to see um you know a lot of progress in the next uh, in the next couple of years i told you at the outset that this episode was going to be a difficult one i have more questions now about diversity change about how to responsibly address something that affects all of us than i did when we started Now, thanks to our guests, I do have some answers, but folks, we have a long, long way to go. Jorge's bullish take notwithstanding, if you're thinking, this doesn't feel like a conclusion to me, well, you're not alone. In fact, I'm right there with you. This does not feel like the end. But maybe that's actually a good thing. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Michael, Samiso, Diana, and Jorge, and to all of you for listening. We'd also like to send a special shout-out to our colleague Alexander Swain for all his help along the way. Next up on Perspectives, we shed some light on private investing. It's not a new area, but it remains a mystery for many. Until then, I'm your host Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe, everyone.